3: Hey there, Mad Money fans, I am Becky Quick, Kramer's off tonight, but we have an action-packed hour coming your way on this CNBC special, Markets in Motion. Stocks making a major turnaround today, erasing some big early losses to finish well off their lows. The recent whipsaw action in the market and the looming threat of a recession has left many wondering how to piece together a game plan for the rest of this year and into next. Tonight, we will help you make sense of it all. We're taking a deep dive into the asset classes that have the markets on the move. We'll spotlight stocks to watch, including the latest action out of Twitter. Then, is the bond market a buy? It's been a tough year for the asset class, but one market expert says opportunity is knocking. Plus, drilling down on today's big move in energy after OPEC Plus announces a major production cut. And cash is king when the market tumbles, but after this recent move higher, we'll tell you where to put your money now. All of that is ahead on tonight's special hour. First, though, we want to get right to a quick check of the markets with our Mike Santoli. And Mike, um, down market today, but not nearly as down as it could have been.
1: Yeah, Becky, it's one of those days where a uh, down uh, 0.2% on the S&P 500 might seem like a relative win. That's both because at the morning lows, the S&P was down about 1.8%. And, of course, today comes after one of the strongest two-day rallies we've seen in years, S&P up 5.7% Monday and Tuesday in the very short term it seems relatively encouraging although it only takes the S&P back to where we traded about two weeks ago that shows you how nasty the slide was into the end of September bigger picture I think one of the reasons stock markets have gotten some relief is the dollar index has eased back off its recent highs in the last couple of days in fact The morning high for the U.S. dollar index was around 11.30 a.m. It declined a bit from there. That's when stocks managed to get a bid because that's where really the Fed fears and hopes come together in the U.S. dollar index. If people think the Fed might be almost done tightening or at least we can see a a path to when it's done, the dollar can come in a little bit along with Treasury yields. Of course, a lot is riding on the jobs number on Friday. That's going to tell us whether, in fact, the bond market and the currency markets have the Fed price correctly, or at least it's going to help tell that story, Becky. Uh, And even today, a little bit of a hint of good economic news being bad news for the market. we got a strong ISM services number, and that's when uh, markets briefly backed off uh, in the morning.
3: The one thing that caught me by surprise, Mike, was just the VIX being down by about 1.8%. I I don't know if that's a sign of, okay, we've been through a lot the last uh, five or six or eight trading sessions, or if that's a sign that, okay, a lot of people are out for the holidays, or if this is really a breather.
1: You know, it does show you that we're sort of normalizing a little bit in terms of expectations for volatility. Uh, we spent some time on the VIX above 30 several days going into the end of last week. Uh, it, it's easing back. Look, we're 6% off the lows in the S&P or thereabouts, five and a half, six 6%. That just gives a little bit of breathing room. I wouldn't necessarily say it means that traders are, are assuming it's all clear from here.
3: Mike, I've been watching you all day. Thank you for the heavy lifting and for sticking around. It. It's great to see you. We'll see you later. Sure thing. Let's talk more about the market action and how you should be positioned as we head into the rest of the year. Joining us right now is Jeffrey Sherman. He's deputy chief investment officer at Double Line Capital. This is uh, the house that are the experts on bonds, and that's why we've got him here. Jeffrey, it's really good to see you tonight. Thanks for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Becky.
3: I know it's never easy to figure out what's going on in the bond market. In fact, double line. I looked up uh, your website today, and you guys talk about how no one can consistently predict changes on the level, direction, or term structure of interest rates. But you do say that when you're looking at the situation recently, this market was clearly oversold on a technical basis. You want to talk about what that looks like to you?
4: Yeah, well, if you look at the the move up in yields we've seen, it really started with the front end of the yield curve. And it was the two-year rate that, that really started this this new trajectory. And what happened is that after the July FOMC meeting, the market interpreted Chairman Powell's comments as being quite dovish, or at least they were close to peaking in the hiking cycle. And so you saw this big rally that transpired post FOMC meeting back in July. And then all of a sudden you had Fed governors come out in droves uh, early the next week saying, wait a second, there's a misinterpretation of what we're trying to do here. And what was happening is, as you know, that the Fed is trying to tighten policy. They're trying to rein in inflation. They're doing that through the interest rate policy as well as the unwind of their balance sheet via quantitative tightening. So if you put these two things together, that's the Fed's objective to tighten policy. But if rates rally, if credit spreads tighten in, that creates a, a, a looser financial condition. It makes it easier for financial conditions. And so what happened is you saw the Fed governors come out in Drove say, no, you misinterpreted what we're trying to do. And since then the bond market really listened. We had inflation data that spooked the rates market. Uh, we had also just some of the economic data, although it's been a mixed bag, things like the labor market have been quite strong. And we know that the Fed sees the relationship between labor and inflation rates. And so put this all together, what happened is over the course of about nine weeks or eight weeks, we saw that the the two-year Treasury rose almost 150 basis points. And what it did, it brought the rest of the Treasury curve with it. And it was really just nonstop selling of bonds over that period. And so just like in the stock market, uh, when things get oversold, you're due for a slight rally. And so we saw that last week as well. And so we've seen a little bit of that rally. We've seen kind of consolidation across the tape right here. And right now, the Treasury market is looking for guidance. And as Mike said at the top of this segment, Right now, it's all eyes on the job report this week and next week's inflation numbers. And if those do indeed deliver around expectations or don't significantly disemploy, I think in the short term, you're going to see yields press a little bit higher as the market continues to price in tighter Fed policy.
3: But if you look at oversold conditions, you're right. Yields have been much better behaved last week, starting into this week. We're we're looking at a different scenario. It just feels to me like there's not a lot of conviction from the market. You know, there's this sort of hope afloat that, okay, maybe the Fed is going to see things and maybe they're going to back off. But the Fed's certainly not sounding that out. All the Fed speakers this week have continued to be very hawkish.
4: Right, and I think, once again, it's this idea of the market loosening the conditions. Now, we can argue that, yes, conditions are tighter than they were two months ago, But what you have is that a market that started to rally again. And a lot of this, I think, was driven by external factors. Um, We know that the the U.K. market sold off massively last week. Uh, It caused intervention by the BOE. It took a reversal of policy on the tax policy from from the prime minister as well. Mm -hmm. And so what you've seen is that the the U.S. markets moved a little bit in sympathy with the U.K. If you look today, the U.K. is off commensurate with what we've seen uh, in the U.S. market. So. I think you're right that what we're trying to find is what that even keel is within the marketplace. Uh, but again, as you said, the Fed governors continue to, to, to spit the rhetoric that they want tighter policy. They're going to continue to be inflation fighters. And just look at the dot plots that were released uh, at the FOMC meeting last week. What you have on if you look at where the dots are, the bulk of the the surveys from the various Fed governors is that policy rates should be 100 to 125 basis points higher than they are today. So that means the bond market needs to continue to tighten a little bit. So although I think we're very close to the end of this hiking cycle. And again, this is all going to be predicated on the growth and inflation data and specifically on the labor market. But if we're getting close to those late innings. What that means is that now it's getting to the point where the Treasury yields are a solid buy, And we're <laughs> looking across the markets. So what you're finding out there is that now that we've hit kind of these kind of levels we haven't seen in roughly 11 years or so, it's starting the time to really be able to leg into bonds. You can build a high quality portfolios today that allow you to generate yields that are, let's say, roughly six plus percent. And if you believe inflation, as we do, is going to come down next year, and and maybe it's going to be elevated relative to Fed policy, but let's just say it prints around four to four and a half percent, that gives you a significant real yield advantage. And so although there's choppiness ahead, we think there are some good opportunities within the bond market today.
3: Jeffrey, thank you very much. Jeffrey Sherman.
4: Okay, great. Great to be with you, Becky. Thank you.
3: Great to see you, too. Now it does seem like everything in the market has been a victim of the volatility, but there are some stocks that are safe haven plays, some that are more so than others. At least that's according to our next guest, Ann Barry. She's the founder of Threadneedle Ventures. And Ann, um, first off, we should just say you are not quite as optimistic about the macro environment out here. You're you're thinking that maybe what we're seeing with the market today is a little bit of a head fake, or over the last week.
5: Becky, I think that's exactly right. To be honest, I've been a bit baffled by some of the rallying that we've seen in the market, and and partly it's because, just having spent a lot of time there recently, I look at just how desperate the situation is becoming for the consumer internationally, not just with the U.S. dollar importing inflation to many key trading uh, partners, whether it's Japan or whether it's the U.K., Uh, for for the U.S., but also in terms of what the impact of this energy war is having, particularly on the European consumer. So I'm a lot more pessimistic, particularly on those stocks that have got global revenue streams than I, I think the market is right now.
3: But you do like things that consumers are going to continue to spend on. You break this down kind of into a barbell strategy where you say you like the stuff that they have to spend on and then the luxury items where they're really going to splurge, right?
5: That's right, Becky. And this really comes from looking back at what happened to consumer behavior in 2008. And by the end of that quarter, about $200 billion of U.S. consumer spending had disappeared relative to the same time the prior year. And at that point, when I was investing, one of the trends that that was very clear was consumers were either going towards deep value. They were going to the dollar generals. They were going to the Walmarts. They were getting bang for their buck or they were splurging on luxuries. And in this case, I think that the new luxury actually is premium content, whether it's something like a Netflix subscription or it's something like going to see a concert. It used to be the affordable luxury, used to be a Starbucks coffee. I think now it's about getting premium content direct to the home. I
3: I did do a little bit of a double take, Anne, when I saw that, that your idea of luxury these days is Netflix and Spotify, but those are the things that you think people will actually continue to spend on that they don't have to, but they want to.
5: That's exactly right. I think that people do want to have uh, audio coming through to their phone. If you look at music, there's only about 15 percent penetration of smart devices globally. So there's still a huge uh, tailwind there in terms of um, addressable market. I'm a believer in Netflix starting to put in place um, an ad supported system that's going to get real uptake. And if you think about Becky, what's been going on with brands, particularly the ones that have been going direct to consumer, they've been crushed by the change in privacy laws that have applied on the Apple system in particular. And they're desperately looking for more effective, more trackable places to spend their marketing dollars. And if something like an Amazon Prime or, in this case, a Netflix can provide it, I do think there's real uplift there.
3: The stuff that you think they're going to have to spend on uh, things like Walmart, you you point out that there is some foreign exchange concerns there. That's a big headwind for Walmart, but you like it anyway. Why?
5: Well, I do because I think about just the sheer scale of that business, Becky, and I also think that Walmart is doing something... Um, quite clever behind the scenes, which is investing heavily into new revenue sources down down the line, not right now. I think, you know, their fintech innovation, what they're doing in um, health and wellness delivery in terms of pharmacies and stores is important. But I think, Becky, if I look at deep value, that's why I think Dollar General still has opportunity. It's almost entirely domestically focused. You've got the strong dollar helping to support merchandising and sourcing, but you're still getting domestic revenue uh, without having a hit on Forex.
3: All right, Anzo, let's just wrap it up for people. Walmart, Dollar General, Petco, Netflix, Spotify, and Live Nation. Those are your picks. want to thank you for being here today. It's really good to see you. Thanks, Becky. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. We are just getting started on this CNBC special, Markets in Motion.
6: Tonight, oil's well that ends well. With investors on high alert after today's OPEC meeting, we're drilling down on what's next for the sector. Plus, oh, tweet mercy, what Elon Musk's about-face means for the stocks of Tesla and Twitter. And the name's bond. We'll find out if it's time to change your bond strategy amid the uncertainty when we return on CNBC. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more.
0: Welcome back to the
3: CNBC special, Markets in Motion. Shares of Twitter up more than 17% since Monday after Elon Musk's on again, off again deal by the social media company was once again revived yesterday. With Musk now proposing to buy Twitter for, oh yeah, the original deal price of $44 billion, you have to wonder, how the heck is he going to pay for this? Joining us right now to dig into the financials for us is CNBC's Robert Frank. And Robert, I know you've been following the money on this for a very long time. Where do things stand? What's he have? What's he need?
7: Well, Becky, it's Musk in motion this week because he committed to providing $33 billion in equity for this deal. The question, as you say, is how he's going to raise that money and whether he may need to sell more Tesla shares. This year, he sold $15.5 billion in Tesla stock. First of that was back in April when he tweeted, no further sales planned after today. And then he sold again in August. He's getting $7 billion in VC investments from Larry Ellison, Mark Andreessen, and Saudi Arabia. And he has a $4 billion stake in Twitter, that he already owns. Assuming that that is included, he now has 27 of the 33 billion he needs. Now, that leaves, of course, the 6 billion unfunded. UBS says he may have to pay taxes on the August stock sale, but he may have a lot left over from last year's sales. Bottom line, UBS says he may need to sell at least $10 billion of Tesla stock to fund this deal. Wedbush says he maybe only has to sell about three billion point is more sales may be planned now another challenge is the bank debt morgan stanley and others have committed to loans of 12 a half billion some of which they have to resell to investors now with credit markets so tight right now they could end up losing hundreds of millions of dollars on these loans and they may need to offer interest rates of 15 percent or more just to get investors interested becky
3: Robert, uh, these sound like big problems, but big problems for the bank, not for this deal potentially going through, right? This is kind of on the banks and, you know, they've got 15 days to come up with this or they can loan their own money out on this. But their problem, not the deal's problem.
7: That's the best I can tell. There is a widespread theory out there, mainly on Twitter, uh, by wishful thinkers, I think, who think that, Elon Musk knows that the bank will not come through with the financing, that the banks are going to renege. So therefore, he gets an out on this deal. So therefore, this whole thing that he's agreeing to the deal is a charade. And he's going to go to Twitter and say, oh, the banks wouldn't agree to the funding. Sorry, no deal. As far as I can read from the contracts and the commitment letters, this funding is ironclad. The banks are on the hook for this. So I think you're right. The banks don't have an out. And this is just a formality.
3: Robert, thank you. We'll see you again soon. Our next guest says that Musk really had no choice but to stick with his original offer all along. Joining us to break this down and to talk about what a Musk-led Twitter could look like is Jim Stewart. He's a CNBC contributor and a New York Times columnist. By the way, Jim, we should also point out to people, on top of being a great author and so many other things, you're a graduate of Harvard Law School, so you know what you're going to speak about in some of these legal issues too. Um,
8: yes, let's, that's correct.
3: Let's just pick up on where Robert left off. Are there is there wiggle room in this? Does Twitter, because the judge today actually said that she's going to continue to press on towards trial. They are still negotiating on both decides to come up with something, what does this mean? What does this legalese mean? And how sure are should investors be about this deal going through?
8: Well, obviously, they're not going to stop the trial until there is an actual deal. And from everything that I've heard and read about it, Twitter is taking a very hard line. I mean, for one thing, look, they're not giving him any concession on the price. And they're also insisting that there be no new contingencies, that this be a surefire thing. And they're holding out for that. And I think they can do that because they have the winning hand. I mean, I and, and the other people I've been talking to have been scratching our heads ever since Musk pulled out of this, thinking, on what legal theory did he expect that he could wriggle out of this deal? I have not. I have not heard a plausible one. You know, he's been throwing up, you know, various uh, sort of red herrings, like, oh, there were, you know, there were fake accounts, they misrepresented something. He had locked himself into a very firm deal. And in my estimation, none of that was going to prevail in court. So the legal implications of that are either that he was going to lose. I'm sure his lawyers told him he was going to lose. And either the judge, after he spent millions of dollars in the litigation, would order him to go through with the deal, or more likely, because judges don't like to do that, would assess the damages that he has caused Twitter by making the bid and then withdrawing. And all you have to do there is start by measuring the price between what he was promising to pay and where Twitter was trading after he pulled out. And you could see he was looking at billions of dollars in damages. So I think for him, this was really, he really had no choice.
3: Billions of dollars in damages, and then he doesn't get the company anyway? So you get charged No, he has nothing. Off. He yeah.
8: pays the damages, and he has absolutely nothing to show for it. That would be a crazy outcome and a terrible one for him personally both financially and in terms of, you know, any credibility he would have in the market. So I think he really, really did have his back up against the wall here. And honestly, I think he got good legal. If indeed his lawyers said, look, you're going to lose this case, I think he got good legal advice, because I think he was going to lose it. If, if now, I mean, obviously, he hasn't done the deal yet, so we may still get this trial. But... I can't imagine that scenario happening.
3: But if the judge is proceeding with this trial, I mean, he was supposed to get deposed tomorrow. Does that get put off?
8: Uh, That's a good question. Um, Typically, I I think it would depend on how close they are to a deal. It doesn't make any sense to go ahead and depose him if they really are close. If not, and I'm on Twitter, I'd say, yes, absolutely. Get him in there and keep the pressure on. They have every incentive to do that until he actually does enter into this final agreement.
3: I mean, it's, it's fun to watch Twitter and see Elon's responses to these things. He responded well, to one kind of crazy idea today that was floated, one of these uh, crazy ideas where somebody said, you know, during these negotiations, you should use your flex your muscle and your ability to be able to float a rocket over the opposing people's houses. And he responded <laughs> back that, yeah, not a bad idea, something along those lines.
8: Well, you know, I have to say, as a journalist, as opposed to a lawyer here, I was looking forward to the trial, there was going to be, you know, it would have been very interesting and I'm sure a lot of material would have come out, you know, another point I think that nobody's really focused on so much is that he was acting like this Twitter whistleblower was going to be the salvation of his effort to pull out, like the whistleblowers are going, oh my God, there's fraud, there's all this going on inside the company, but if you look at what the whistleblower actually said, none of it did Musk any good. The whistleblower was saying that Twitter wasn't doing enough to stop additional fake accounts. He never claimed that the Twitter had misstated the number of fake accounts. In fact, he specifically said they had not. Twitter has been filing audited financial statements for years, and I think we have to give them the benefit of assume that those are you know, are accurate. I mean, there are severe penalties if you do not if you misstate things in an audit financial statement.
3: Very quickly, um just as a supposition, what do you think the new Twitter looks like under Elon Musk assuming this deal does go through because he's talking about some pretty grand plans at this point.
8: Well, you know, some of the grand plans that i am hearing him talk about like the the one app or that sort of thing. I mean, I, I mean good luck to him. them all. I, <laughs> Yeah, I mean he he's I I I'll, I concede he is He is he is a genius. He has gone places that everyone else has feared to tread with great success. So, you know, I compliment him for that. But do you think Twitter hasn't thought of this before? I (laughs) they've got a lot of smart people there, starting with Jack Dorsey, number one. Secondly, the one thing I, I think we can be confident in, he is he has a very strong libertarian streak. He Mm -hmm. does not like government interference. He doesn't like the SEC telling him what he can or cannot say. He doesn't like having to comply with the SEC regulations. It will be a libertarian Twitter, which means, you know, it's going to, I think it's going to be a free for all that a lot of people who can't get on there now will be there starting with, you know, the former president. And the question I think will be, what will that do to mainstream Twitter users? Now, Twitter does have a very strong, you know, so-called network effect You know people want to be on there because that's the biggest audience and then vice versa. That's something Twitter has going for it. So I think he has some leeway there, but if he goes too far, if it gets, too, if gets, if it gets taken over by extremists, it's gonna alienate the mainstream users. I think that's the risk.
3: Hmm. Well, it will be fun and interesting to watch. And Jim, my friend, it's good to see you. Thank you.
8: A lot of Likewise, thanks, Becky. Okay.
3: Still to come on this CNBC special, Markets in Motion, oil stocks higher on OPEC's big production cut. Where are oil prices going from here? And by the way, what will it mean for the already fragile economy? We've got your power playbook coming up. Plus, as we head to a break, let's take a look at some of the mega cap names. Apple and Microsoft up today. But Apple, uh, yeah, Apple was up. But Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla all trading lower. Tesla tracking for its third straight negative week. We'll be right back.
2: You seek the key.
3: Welcome back, everybody. Oil closing higher for the day as OPEC Plus announces that it's going to be cutting production by two million barrels a day. That is its biggest cut since the start of the pandemic. Brian Sullivan is on the ground in Vienna, where the meeting took place and joins us now with the details.
9: Becky, it was a dramatic day here at OPEC headquarters in Vienna, Austria, first in-person meeting in two and a half years. And uh, I guess the number two is appropriate because it was a two million barrel a day cut to future output. Now, the number will not actually be 2 million barrels. It's going to be about 900,000 to a million actual barrels because many countries in OPEC were not meeting their quotas anyway. But we know this, that 2 million barrel a day number, that's going to get the screaming headlines in the papers tomorrow morning. It is going to be politicized. We had a chance to sit down with Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, the Saudi energy minister. I asked him why they did it. We talked about economies and the Federal Reserve and interest rates. He said they have to be progressive or proactive. And aggressive. Listen.
10: OPEC Plus had been successful, effective, because we take matters, we are attentive. Now, how we are attentive? Because we take things, measures in a preemptive way. And we make (coughs) sure that in order to be, to preempt, you have to be assertive. So we have to be assertive, preemptive. And of course we have to be proactive.
9: I think certainly aggressive is gonna be the term that is being used. This will be politicized as we know, certainly Washington DC, the White House, they're not gonna be happy with this move. Oil prices on the rise once again, take it for what you will. And however you're gonna read it, OPEC plus today with a massive move, one of the biggest production cuts in their history outside of COVID. Becky, back to you.
3: Brian, thank you very much. Totally understand what Brian's saying, the oil minister, blah, 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 blah. Energy stocks on the rise following the OPEC plus output cut. The S&P Energy ETF is up nearly 46 percent so far this year. So could that strength continue in the fourth quarter? Joining us with an outlook for the oil market is Damian Corvalin. He, of course, is Goldman Sachs, head of energy research. And Damien, let's just break down this OPEC Plus meeting today. Brian pointed to this. There's all these questions about what just happened. Uh, Two million barrels per day cut, but it's really, that's a technical issue, closer to 900,000 barrels per day. What's that going to do to the market?
10: I think the key really is the market was already tight. Remember, we're record low on inventories, uh, and we're heading into the end of the year in deficit. This only exacerbates the deficit. So for all the concerns on demand and the macro outlook, this is quite bullish, right? This is going to take inventories from record low to even lower level and set the stage, in our view, for a large rally in prices at the end of this year. So, you know, for us, very much a bullish outcome for the oil market.
3: Yeah, the Saudi oil minister who was talking there, uh, they have to be proactive, blah, 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 blah. Basically, they're saying they didn't like what happened in the third quarter when oil prices were down 25 percent. But if you're looking year to date, oil prices are still up 17 percent. So what gives?
10: So there are three ways to look at this, right? In the short run, I think concerns, of course, have been on the demand side, potential hard landing. And so, you know, prices have followed down 40 percent. Uh, they're responding to that. The second angle is the decline of oil has actually been much larger than other cyclical asset classes because the volatility in energy, the uncertainty that we face between Chinese lockdown, Russian sanctions ultimately have led to an exodus of investors. So oil prices are actually pricing in worse than any other asset class. And that's the second uh, reason for this intervention is to connect prices back to, as I said, tight fundamentals. The third one is, look, prices are up here today, but no one's responding on the supply side. There is no investment increasing from here. And so you know, responding and supporting prices over the medium term is actually necessary. The policies in place, whether it's SPR, for example, releases, do not solve the underinvestment that we have. And so that's the third angle under which to think of those cuts is we actually need structurally higher prices to avoid depleting inventories even further next year and the year after
3: that. So I I hear your point that they are doing a supply cut. Lower supply leads to higher prices. However, Isn't there like the next derivative in this trade where higher oil prices leads to a weaker economy, which leads to a drop in demand? So, you know, how do you balance all of that out?
10: It's a difficult one, right? So think of the analogy of the 1970s. Um, You know, think of the Volcker hikes. They came in after a decade of high prices and significant investment in new supply. Today, you know, the Fed is hiking, killing demand with underinvestment for the last 10 years. So this is actually much worse. This dilemma you described is really You can't have demand because you can't have supply, but if you want to create supply, you're going to hurt demand. So that's, I think, what the market is stuck with. And on average, I think we have to acknowledge that $90 just isn't the price at which anyone is investing. So that's just not a sustainable outcome. And staying here artificially only makes next year's growth outlook the year after that even more challenging because we definitely will see at that point record high prices to finally create supply that no one's investing in today.
3: Damien, I, I realize you're not a political analyst, but I, I will say I was not shocked to see the Saudis saying that they were going to cut 500,000 barrels per day, not, not a huge spry, or 500, million, or 500 million barrels per day. That doesn't shock me, doesn't surprise me with any of those things, that 500,000. But hearing that the UAE and Kuwait were kind of on board with this did surprise me to a certain extent. They're supposed to be our allies. I thought if anybody was going to hold out and maybe raise their hand and, and give us a little bit of room for relief, it would be them. What gives?
10: So, look, I think the uh, group is operating as one, right? The uh, coalition has been strong, and this decision has been uh, unanimous. It was a very quick meeting in the end. Look, the reality that prices are down 40%, you know, applies to all of them. Um, and in the end, I think the response, which, again, you can argue is either short-term defensive relative to demand, long-term trying to anticipate this supply under investment, look, is, is applies to all of them. In a way, right, you know, cynically if you want, but high oil prices that actually exacerbate the economic downturn are actually bad for all those producers, right? They mm-hmm. don't benefit from a recession, neither does China on a global scale. So to some extent, they're trying to thread this. OK, we have to somewhat respond to lower prices, but some also maintain investment. I think they are all uh, very much on the same page here.
3: Meaning that you don't expect to see additional big cuts to supply.
10: So, look, I think the next move very much at that point will depend on how the economic outlook shapes in the next few months. And then the Russia shortfall uh, in production once the European embargo goes through. Our base case is this cut today is actually not sustainable. Like, that leads by next year to a significant spike in prices. So we base case it for the next three months. But we think it's just not sustainable given how tight the oil market is. Because at that point, you really get to that demand destructive price level uh, well above $100 uh, per barrel.
3: Damien, thank you. Good to see you.
10: Good to see you. All
3: right, folks, we are just past the bottom of the hour. That means we get to bring you up to speed on today's market action. The Dow, the S&P, and the Nasdaq all ending the day slightly lower but they had a late-day rally that got them really out of a deep hole. The major averages at this point snapping a two-day winning streak, but down by about a quarter of a percent or less across the board. Now, the futures opening just a short time ago, and here's where they stand right now. You're going to see the Dow futures basically flat. S&P futures, the same story. NASDAQ pretty much all of them flat, waiting to see what happens next, up by about 1.8. Of course, it's early trading, very thin trading at this point. Before we head to a break, despite the averages closing down today, there were some stocks hitting 52 week highs, Lamb Weston and PG&E. Stay with us.
6: Coming up, bear market bounce or something much bigger? What the technicals are signaling for the month of October. Plus, forget James Bond, why bonds have people talking in this market? And is cash king? We'll find out if the asset class has retaken its crown when we return on CNBC.
3: everybody. Now to the bond market. Bank of America's MOVE index, which tracks volatility in the bond market, has more than doubled this year. You already know that if you've been watching these markets, but it's seeing higher levels of volatility now than during the COVID-19 outbreak. And it's only ever been higher during the 2008 global financial crisis. Uh-oh. Let's take a closer look at what's ahead with Kamal Srikumar. He is the president of Srikumar Global Strategies. And, and Sri, a lot of people breathing a sigh of relief. We've seen things calm down in the markets, but you think it's a little too soon for the euphoria. You want to explain why?
11: Sure. There was, it was euphoria, um, as we know, Becky, Monday and Tuesday in the equity market, but the treasury market did not share in the euphoria today quite markedly. And you don't see that, in other major bond markets as well. The German 10-year Bund yield increased, the UK 10-year yield is more than 4% again. So you essentially have a bear market in bonds, and I'm a person who believes that the bond market has been a better predictor of the Federal Reserve policy as well as the future of the economy than equity markets have been. Hmm. Remember, you referred to 2007, 2008, Becky, October 2007, the S&P 500 hit an all-time record high. So if you were standing then, the US economy was poised for several years of rapid growth. Yet the Great Recession began three months later. The bond market was already uh, suggesting a recession. So what is happening today? We have the two to 10-year yield curve remains inverted. It has been inverted significantly since early July and that is suggesting a recession, and even though there was all of this optimism about a Fed pivot in the last couple of days, look at what the numbers are suggesting. We have the OPEC plus meeting results going to push up gasoline prices. It is going to push up overall inflation. Today, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta GDP now indexed, shows plus 2.7% growth for the third quarter. That doesn't seem like a weakening economy to me. Also, the services index of the Institute of Supply Management shows strength. ADP numbers for private sector job growth, which is a precursor to our Friday big jobs report, that was a healthy one. So there is no slowdown. The Fed cannot pivot. The Fed will pivot, in my opinion, only when one and one, or just when that happens, and that is something has to break. Uh, hmm. Financial institutions in the United States are said to be very strong, unlike 2007, 2008. But whoever thought that the problems would arise from the UK pension funds, right. and that's where it originated. We are going to have problems in the US. We simply don't know where they are going to come from, Becky.
3: I'm with you on that. If we see a Fed pivot, it it may not be this good relief reason that a lot of people are anticipating. You made a big call on Squawk Box last week where you said you think the 10 year has topped out at 4 percent. If you're looking at all these reasons for the Fed not to pivot yet, why do you think that that we have hit this point where, you know, we've kind of seen the end of the interest rate acceleration when it comes to yields?
11: That's a great question, Peggy, uh, Becky, and a very timely one. And let me respond this way. Uh, that is that when it hit 4%, I thought the 4% figure incorporates or in discounts within it many of the factors that I mentioned. And at the same time, we are going to go into a recession. And I had to make a quick calculation as to when the recession would set in and the demand destruction takes place compared with higher bond yields. As you know, having been uh, as we have been together on uh, Squawk Box over the last two years, I've been looking for higher and higher yields. Mm-hmm. But right now, it seems to me that the turning point has come. All of the negatives are incorporated in the higher bond yield, which is why I think 4% is the top. Can you go to 4.10? Sure. I'm not absolutely stuck to a 4% figure, but we are not talking of 5 or 6% on the 10-year at all.
3: Shree, thank you. Um, by the way, I like your tie. We match today. We're thinking alike. Good to see you, Sri.
11: <laughs> that means a lot to me.
3: <laughs> I will see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, folks, after the break, is this week's market jump a classic bear market bounce or the start of a more sustainable comeback? We're going to see what the technicals are signaling. That's when the CNBC special Markets in Motion continues. Welcome back to the CNBC special, Markets in Motion. As stocks continue to swing from day to day, our next guest says seasonality could signal an opportunity on the horizon. Let's go to the charts with Jessica Inskeep. She's Options Play Director of Product and Education for more. Jessica, what are you seeing? Do you want to explain that? Where's the opportunity?
12: Yeah, absolutely. So seasonality, definitely from a technical perspective, looks like that we have a wonderful setup. So when we have a particularly challenging September, which we did, the S&P 500 was down 9.3%. That's normally followed by a very lucrative or a really great bounce for the second or the, the fourth quarter of the year into the first half of the year. That occurs 91% of the time with an average turn of 16.6%. That's inclusive backdating all the way to 1928 and inclusive of a midterm year, which is extremely important. Now, know that those data points are just purely looking at patterns and patterns and events, and we have a lot of macro headwinds. However, that seasonality perspective certainly provides an optimal setup
3: so that means basically we're up more than 5% this week but we were really sold off so maybe there's more upside to come absolutely nailed it okay so where, where are we talking about in terms of support levels in terms of resistance what are you kind of watching right now where's the bands Yeah,
12: so for the bigger picture, I I like to take a look at a weekly chart. When you take a look at a weekly chart, it filters away the noise, especially with high volatility. If you take a look at the 200 weekly moving average, this is particularly important as a form of support. If you look at the chart backdating to all of the major declines, and when we look for a reversal, it's important that we're above this line, and this indicates a true bull market when above the 200 weekly moving average, so something I talk about quite often. And in addition to that, when we're trying to spot bullish divergence, I like to use MACD or RSI. MACD in particular, because it uses an EMA, which which puts more weight on recent prices, which will give us an indication of divergence. So as you can see on the chart, If the underlying, or S&P in this case, makes a lower low, but MACD makes a higher high, Mm -hmm. so those forward-looking prices, then that's an indication of bullish divergence. That is forming. It is purely a signal. It is not confirmed. And that's an important component just to watch. So to look for those signals or really drill in, we have to take a look and bring on some of that noise and look at a daily chart.
3: We have a, a couple of big events coming up. You've got the jobs report on Friday. You've got an inflation report coming next week. And so much of this market has been driven just on the idea that, holy cow, what's the Fed going to do next? What do each of these data points mean? Could this be a situation where the volatility really increases over the next several sessions?
12: Absolutely. And if you'd study bear markets overall, volatility is just ever so high. And going back all the way, I believe it's even 20 years, the best performing days within the S&P 500 are during bear markets. Due to that volatility, it's also on the upside. So absolutely, I expect that because the the market's going to digest and try to understand the actual equilibrium and the price at which it should be. And now there's more retail players within the market, more technology, so we react more often, so that volatility is heightened. Jessica, thank you. Thank you, Becky. Mm -hmm.
3: When we come back, legendary investor Ray Dalio making a major U-turn earlier this week, saying he no longer thinks cash is trash. So is it time to add the greenback to your investing strategy? We're going to dig into that asset class next. Plus, don't go anywhere. The news with Shepard Smith kicks off at the top of the hour. This CNBC special, Markets in Motion, will be back right after this. Welcome back. The S&P 500 closing down almost 5% in the third quarter as prior to that broad market route. According to Bank of America, cash was the only major asset class to actually gain in the third quarter, ending up about a half a percent. Even noted cash's trash investor Ray Dalio saying yesterday he's actually changed his mind when it comes to the liquid asset class. Let's bring in Daniel Girard, senior multi-asset strategist at Straight, State Street Global Markets. And Daniel, um, Ray's position always made sense to me. Cash is trash, especially when you're in an inflationary environment because your purchasing power is less. Is worth less. What does he see that's changed his mind and what do you think?
13: Yeah, look, I think that it's got some merit to it. I think, um, you know, we can all remember... Uh, not all of us, but many of us remember years ago when you when you got eight or nine percent in a savings account, <laughs> and um, you know it made a lot of sense. But of course, recently with high inflation, with uh, sort of an updraft in in other asset markets, it didn't make a lot of sense. That's changing. We're in a period now with not a lot of historical context. Um, the Fed is trying to normalize monetary policy. They will continue to do so. When we need to look through the current markets with this lens of inflation, and I think that means that this. You know, stock bond correlation continues, and that means correlation is they're both going to uh, to go down for a while until the Fed gets a handle on inflation. And bond
3: prices, but yields go up, right?
13: Correct, exactly yeah. right, um, and um, that means that we are uh, you know really looking at some ultra short duration for now is as the USD is is your best friend at this point, I think. Um, you know, It's a tough one. There's going to be a bottom at some point, And I don't mean for people not to be investing in these markets, but um, it is uh, cash. Cash has some merit now.
3: Cash has some merit, even when inflation is high, if you think stocks continue to go down, if you think other investments are going to be cheaper, more cheaply priced too. Um, right. You just think the Fed is not at the pivot point yet, right?
13: I don't. Look, I think we have two overlapping periods here. We've got a period where the Fed has been trying for years to normalize policy to get to some neutral level. And at the same time, they've got to move further than that and fight inflation. They've barely gotten to the normalization point yet. Um, You know, Whether or not we're at neutral, the economy tells us that. We don't tell the economy that. And if you look at credit growth, credit growth continues to be very strong in the US. And that's a problem um the fed has managed to tamp down money supply growth but it's really because money's coming out of the securities portfolios um there's deleveraging happening in the in the financial markets not in the real economy goods and services continue to to move higher as credit expands in both for both businesses and consumers that's not a neutral environment the fed's going to have to to work harder
3: Usually, when you see rising interest rates, people like the financials because they figure you're actually going to be able to get some sort of spread, credit spread. The banks will actually make out on stuff like that. But this is different timing because the the Fed is raising into um, the potential for a recession. Um, you say sell financials on any potential rallies that you see here. Why is that?
13: I think that's exactly right. Financials make sense when you have rising rates because you've got a a better shaped curve in some. A view that the economy is actually getting stronger, that there'll be better demand ahead. The problem is that there actually is too much loan demand right now, which means this rising rates, the point of the rising rates is to actually to tamp down business and consumer credit. I think that that's going to be very tough, especially with difficult capital requirements. And um, we haven't even talked about um, new capital requirements coming in, in in the near future, this is something where I don't think banks actually do particularly well this time around. This is something where uh, any good news, if you have good news this earnings season, from Q3 earnings season, um, take it, bank it.
3: 15 seconds, the one asset class, one place you would put your money in equities, energy?
13: Energy. I like it. Uh, I've been saying this for a little while. I think that uh, we've misunderstood what's happening here. This has been a supply issue. OPEC we, you know, confirmed to us this week that they don't like this idea that um, you know we're trying to sell repo energy oil out of the strategic petroleum reserve. Um, this is there's a real structural issue. So I think energy is going higher, and there's not much we can do about it.
3: Daniel Girard, thank you very much. It's great to see you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being with us tonight, everybody. I hope you have a great evening. That does it for us tonight. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now.
0: Sometimes it takes a different approach